The reading this morning is Hosea chapter 2. You may notice in your bulletin that Pastor Jonas will be preaching from verses 14 and 15 of this chapter. We will read the chapter in its entirety for the sake of context. Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhamah, contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry. For the mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts and her new moons, her Sabbaths and all her festival assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals, when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, and will no longer call me Baal-e. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, And war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow 
her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Good morning, church. I thank you for your hospitality, for your prayers, and for your love. I really feel loved. That's how you have reached out to me and assisted me in my hour of need. And uh, thank you for being a family to me. This morning, my text is Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. You've read the chapter. My subject, sanctification, a process of disciplinary love. Sanctification, a process of disciplinary love. I shall again read in your hearing those two verses in focus, verse 14 and 15. Please indulge me and stand again as we read the word. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, New King James, (laughs) will bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, please make us on this Sabbath satisfied in Christ alone so that we may kill all idolatry in our lives. Cause us to find our identity, significance, and security in him alone. Make us sympathetic to everyone we encounter that we may kill all self-righteousness permitting no arrogance or hubris in our dealings with anyone. Grant us a sacrificial relationship with even those who attack us in order that we may kill any manifestation of an unforgiving or hateful heart. Oh God, even as your son absorbed The full cup of your wrath on our behalf, grant us the grace to lovingly forgive. Help us this day to make you our supreme priority. That our desire for you, O Lord, will not be opportunistic, but that we may seek you for you alone, and not for just what we can get out of you. Make us even more aware of our special position that we may remember that we are adopted. 
that we may approach you boldly even when we feel like running away because of our failures. Thank you for loving us and even bringing us here. We pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Sanctification, a process of disciplinary love. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, do you ever feel like you're traveling through a wilderness? A barren place? Has this barren place been in your home, your marriage, your workplace, or even your local church? Have you ever wondered if all the pain in your life is for nothing? Have you been tempted to wallow in self-pity about setbacks you have endured? Have you imagined that others always seem to have it so easy? If you are a genuine Christian, I have good news for you. It's not all for nothing. It's not. God has a good thing planned for you. Your wilderness experiences are part of a glorious plan to usher you into everlasting joy. The wilderness can miraculously become a beautiful thing. If you have ever had troubles in a relationship, you have something to learn from the prophet Hosea. <laughs> His marriage was interesting. <laughs> God <laughs> made him use his failed marriage to declare his sovereign grace. <laughs> now, isn't it interesting that I am beginning to talk about a wilderness experience and immediately I introduce a discussion of marriage. Many are convinced that their marriage is just that, a wilderness experience. The Bible often compares the relationship God has with his people with the relationship of marriage. God once said to Israel, Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 14, I am married to you. But the same, at the same time, God calls the sin of his people spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness. And then the question could be raised, how does God deal with such unfaithfulness among his people? The prophecy of Hosea says something about this. And although it, it must be noted that tough love is involved because God puts them in the wilderness... God does deal graciously with his unfaithful people in the wilderness. This is amazing. Our religion is one of sovereign love, sovereign grace. Our text is evidence of such gracious dealings. Now, the prophet Hosea had difficulty delivering his prophecy to the people of Israel. He had to use his failed marriage as a teaching example. His wife, Goma, had become unfaithful to him and had gone after other lovers. 
And with the example of his broken marriage made public, the prophet had to give a spiritual message to the people of Israel. So he said to Israel, in effect, you too, just like my wife, have become unfaithful to your spiritual husband who is the Lord. And now God must deal with you. Israel had become unfaithful to the Lord God. The people showed that they were not interested in him anymore. Other things interested them, and they said so, quoting the words of the prophet's adulterous wife. They said it. Let me read it to you. Back, back in verse 5, it said, For their mother played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. When she said lovers, she referred to the Baals or Baals, the Canaanite gods. In other words, Israel felt attracted to the world, expecting to get her desires satisfied by the world and by it saying, in effect, I'll get my wants and desires answered by the world. The worldliness defined her identity. The worldliness defined her significance. The worldliness defined her security. <laughs> Such an attitude makes people spiritual adulterers. But God would deal with them. Israel was in for some hard times. Israel would soon go into Babylonian captivity. And during such captivity, Israel will, would suffer. God would stop all her celebrations, feast days, new moons, Sabbaths, and solemn feasts. So we read in verse 11. God would destroy her vines and her fig trees, verse 12 says. In other words, Israel would suffer spiritual but also material poverty. But, but is, this, is, is this all there is to the Lord's response? Just trouble. Now, they deserve all the, all the trouble they got. They went a whoring after other gods. But is that, all God, uh, is that all God has to offer in response? Trouble. I've come here to tell you certainly not. His response is certainly not like ours. God's response to his people's unfaithfulness is rather surprising. And exciting. He manages to uphold his eternal holiness while at the same time reaches out in mercy. Well, I don't know about you, but that makes me glad. <laughs> He's not irritable and moody, dismissing us with disgust at our whoredom and unfaithfulness. What does he do? <laughs> well, he does at least three things. I'm going to show you them from the text. One, God balances chastisement with charm. Number two, God balances criticism with comfort. <laughs> and number three, God balances caution with celebration. <laughs> Let's study them in that order. Number one, God balances chastisement with charm. Look at the first part of verse 14. He said, 
Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness. Stop right there. I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, in all their sin and infidelity, God did not give up on his people Israel. He still graciously dealt with them because we read, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness. Israel had become unfaithful to God, but he would not leave such unfaithfulness unchallenged. He would deal with it. Indeed, he, he, he would have to discipline his people and, and put them into captivity. And, and while, in, while in captivity, they would suffer. But <laughs> he would not abandon his people because in his grace, he would still do something that would bless them. Aren't you, aren't you glad God is like that? <laughs> Therefore, behold, I will allure her. In those words, I will allure her. You may sense God's love for his people. He would allure her, which means he would draw them to attract them. He would entice or incentivize his unfaithful spouse away from her lovers so that she will understand that his love is enough. You don't need them. My love is enough for you. You've been deceived by your lust. <laughs> oh, God <laughs> has for his spouse an attachment, a love that will not let her go. <laughs> Dearly beloved, God has a disciplining power, a chastising power, but he also has alluring charm. He disciplines for spiritual unfaithfulness. Perhaps some of us are feeling the pinch of such discipline right now. Some of us may be guilty of spiritual adultery or even physical adultery. And yet, if you know God savingly, you know he's not after your destruction. He will discipline you, but he disciplines to correct and restore you. God disciplines in love to alert us to what is harming and destroying us. He disciplines us to, to make us cautious about sin. But in such dealings, God's alluring charm also appears. This is because God wants his people all for himself. Hmm. After all, this is where a loving husband wants his wife all to himself. Not by threatening her into being faithful, but by tender, loving overtures, by alluring her. This was Hosea's mission to get his wife back. And he succeeded. <laughs> you can read this in the following chapters. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. Now that's interesting. Why would God want to bring his people into the wilderness? That's an enigma, isn't it? When the prophet speaks of a wilderness, he does not mean to a place of execution. 
a wilderness might look like a good place to execute someone. And it certainly would be a place of death for someone abandoned, especially in a Middle East wilderness. But, but, but this is not the intention here. God would allure them and bring them. Will somebody say bring? He would bring them, not send them. <laughs> he would bring them into the wilderness primarily to prove them. Listen to me. When you go into a wilderness and you're a child of God, he's coming with you. <laughs> this reminds us of how God dealt with Israel after she departed Egypt. <laughs> then too, Israel was brought into the wilderness. But it was not meant as a place of execution for them. Instead, it was a place of deliverance for them and an escape from slavery. Moses had told the people why they were in the wilderness. To humble and prove them so that the Lord might do them good. The wilderness was a place of proving and testing out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and on to the promised land. In our text, we are told that God would allure and bring his people into the wilderness so they would be freed from the slavery of Baal worship. Proven and tested, cured of their unfaithfulness. Beloved, when God begins a saving work in you, he will at some stage bring you into the spiritual wilderness where you will learn some things, where you will unlearn some things. Yes, yes, yes. Where you will get rid of some things. In other words, it will be a time of testing and trial. Typically, such a wilderness is not pleasant. And you could get confused. It's not pleasant. And yet, such a wilderness cannot be avoided. Now, I don't know if you're listening closely, but I need you to hear that. The wilderness cannot be avoided. If you are a child of God, you're going to spend some time there. It cannot be avoided. Canaan did not lie right next to Egypt. <laughs> you had to go through the wilderness to get there. If you're going to make it to the promised land, you better embrace the reality that you must go through a wilderness. <laughs> mm. There must be a wilderness for us if we will get to the heavenly Canaan land. Then we learn some hard lessons, uh, such as how deceitful the idols the world holds up are and, and how foolish it is to lust after them. In the wilderness... God teaches us to deny ourselves and avoid the things that harm us. We are taught to recognize our spiritual poverty, our weakness, and helplessness. We, we, we may then be called to wrestle with, with some of our sinful habits. In that wilderness, that spiritual wilderness, the lights of the world and its attractions will fade and die out. And like the prodigal son... We will come to ourselves and begin to see that we have sinned against heaven and before God. We will learn that we're no longer worthy to be embraced by him or even allured by him. We will learn in the wilderness what, what it is to hunger and thirst again. But, but we will learn 
to depend on God again in that same wilderness. We will begin to value the manna from heaven, the bread of life, and the water from the rock, the living water from Christ. We will learn to appreciate the mercy and grace of God again. In short, in such a spiritual wilderness, God's people learn not only much about themselves, but they come face to face with their need of God's grace. Beloved, do you know something of being allured and brought into the wilderness by God to be proven by him? Is the spiritual wilderness time, as I've described it, a bit familiar to you? Has God ever tested your devotion to him by by taking you into a very uncomfortable spiritual wilderness, a desperate place? What could such a wilderness look like? It could be a sick bed, a breakup, a loss, or some severe trial. Perhaps your willingness is more of a material nature, a financial hardship, a business failure, unemployment, or some different setback. It could be a lot of things. But the question is, have you learned to appreciate your willingness for what it is? A place of proving, a place of testing. Only then will such a wilderness take on a different look. (laughs) The time spent in the wilderness can be helpful, even necessary, to wean you off the ties and affections of this wicked world. (laughs) True, such a wilderness may still be lonely and desolate. You may find yourself at times very much alone there. But the hymn writer wrote something helpful. He said, quote, Friend and lover are departed. Dark and lonely is my way. Lord, be thou my friend and helper. Still to thee, O Lord, I pray. Listen, in the loneliness, the Spirit will give you to yearn for the ties of heaven and the friendship from above. Then you will learn a very precious habit of leaning on the Lord alone. Lord, be thou my friend and helper. Still to thee, O Lord, I pray. You see, in the wilderness, you begin to yearn and long for God. But this yearning and longing will not be disappointed. Why? Why? The faithful saints will sing with the hymn writer, I found a friend. Oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He he drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. And round my heart, still closely twined, those ties which naught can sever. For I am his, and he is mine forever and forever. Oh, come on, will somebody give the Lord a hand clap of praise? Can you do that? Is he worthy? Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Boy, I didn't even ask if I could do that. I'm behaving as if I'm home. So what's the first thing? Hmm? Talk to me. What's the first thing? God does what? He balances chastisement with charm. 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Number two, God balances criticism with comfort. God balances criticism with comfort. Look at the second part of verse 14 and the first part of verse 15. That's what I want. 14b to 15a. It says there, New King James, and speak comfort to her. And speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. <laughs> Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the Lord comforts his people in the wilderness to encourage them. <laughs> Beloved, when God allures people and brings them into the wilderness, he does so that he will have them all to himself. The solitude of the wilderness will prove to be the best opportunity for him to speak to them. Sometimes God needs to just get us away from life as we know it. Maybe put us on our back in a hospital to cause us to look up to him and listen for a change. <laughs> mm. The prophet Ezekiel could once say to the people of Israel on behalf of God, Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 35, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face. Mm -hmm. When the wilderness has troubled people enough, God makes his comforting presence felt. The prophet Hosea could also uh, promise this in our text on behalf of God. And will speak comfort to her. He will speak comfort to her. That's how graciously God deals with people in the wilderness. He will comfort them. And God loves to do this. What sort of things might he say to them to comfort them? Consider, for example, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, where it says what? Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. <laughs> Dearly beloved, those are beautiful things to hear. While God has you in the wilderness, he will have much comfort for you there. He will tell you, amongst other things, that the struggle you are having in the wilderness is no longer your struggle alone, but his. And it is already accomplished. You're no longer fighting a losing battle. Each trial and each difficulty overcome is, is another step closer to him. Your former sinful life, your unfaithfulness, your going after other lovers, all is Forgiven. Forgiven. Your iniquity is pardoned. In the wilderness, God proclaims the comfort of the forgiveness of sins to you. He tells you that he is no longer angry with you. Think of it. Think of it. 
when God begins to open his heart up to his people, he will not keep anything back from them. He will take over their struggles and finish those struggles off. He will forgive their sins and remember them no more. <laughs> but, and, and this is what God wants you to, to wants in return, he will demand that the trust relationship be established again with them. He will want them to learn to trust and believe him at his words utterance again. Therefore, as we read in our text, God also promises them, I will give her her vineyards from there. Did you see that in verse 15? I will give her what? Her vineyards from there. Why such promises? Well, so that believers, having heard such promises, will learn to trust him and wait for them. Hmm? Believers are given something to look forward to so that they may learn more and more about living by faith. They may count on it that God has a blessing in store for them yet, so they wait for it. How can God do all this and be so gracious to people who are by nature so unfaithful? How, how could he do that? Well, listen, our text tells us about the valley of Achor for a door of hope. Did you see that? A valley of Achor as a door of hope. What does this have to do with the overall message? Well, in the valley of Achor was a pile of stones. On those stones, a man named Achon and his family were buried. Oh, you remember that story, don't you? Hmm? Remember him? Achon had been a curse to the armies of Israel during the conquest of Jericho. You can read all about it in Joshua chapter 7. Oh, they were having victory after victory. The Lord was blessing them. All of a sudden, they come to this little town, and they lost. Did the Lord abandon us? What's going on here? I mean, we meet these big armies, and we decimate them, and now we meet this little town, and we've lost. What happened? Well, they knew what happened. <laughs> Achan had stolen some things from the ruins of Jericho, which God had strictly forbidden. God had put a ban on the thing. He had cursed everything there. Hmm? And he said, don't even touch those things. But Achan looked at the, the clothes and the jewels and said, no, I, I can't. No, 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 no. I have to have these things. And he hid them in his tent and the, they, they lost the battle, and they're trying to figure out, oh, let's, 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 let's go over this and uh, uh, have a post-mortem on this loss here. Somebody brought a curse on us. And they found out. They found out it was Achan and his family. But how would the curse be lifted? For a curse to be lifted, somebody has to die. Are you hearing me? <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy. This curse and the sin had to be removed, or else the people will never be able to go into the promised land. If we're going to get into our 
heavenly promised land, the curse has to be removed. Oh, you see where I'm going on, don't you? <laughs> Therefore, in the valley of Achor, Achan the thief was put to death, and with his death went the curse and the sin of Israel. Only then could Israel conquer and inherit the promised land. Our text mentions the Valley of Achor scenario because it has a lesson to teach. In the Valley of Achor, God will give a door of hope. That's what he says, doesn't it? In the Valley of Achor, God will give what? A door of hope. And the people will enter into the rest through that door. Beloved, such a valley of Acre was necessary for the people of Israel. And such a place is also essential for believers today. Essential for you. Essential for me. Such a place was given because the valley of Acre, as a door of hope, is where sin is paid. The curse is removed and the door is open to full communion with God. The valley of Acre for a door of hope. For Israel, in Hosea's days, it was still a hidden and obscure valley near the ruins of Jericho. But for us, for us, right here, right now, the valley of Acre is a prominent hill called Golgotha. This is our door of hope. On Golgotha, our Lord Jesus hung on the cross to carry his people's sin and lift the curse from us. There on that old rugged cross of Golgotha, our Lord Jesus died and with his death, the curse was removed from his people and their sins were forgiven. He died as a sacrifice to satisfy God's righteous anger upon an unfaithful people. He died so that spiritual adulterers could be stopped on their way to destruction. Unfaithful people could again be received into the fellowship of God. And a faithful marriage relationship could be established once again. Our Lord Jesus died and now the door is open. A door of hope and through this door God can allure and bring people such as you and I into the wilderness. Through this door, he can come to encourage you in the journey. Through this door, he can comfort and speak to your heart and your heart will respond to a gospel of a crucified Savior. It will be a door of hope for you which stands wide open for you because God's heart is wide open for you. It is a door of hope, hope for the hopeless. For you who have gone after other lovers, come on now. You came here thinking, I have messed up. Is there hope for me? It's a door just for you. You haven't gone too far for the grace of God to bring you back. There's hope for you today. <laughs> mm -hmm. For you who have lost an interest in God. For you who have sometimes acted as if to say, I will do as I please. Forgiveness of sin. The pardoning of iniquity. The removal of the curse can be found at Golgotha where Jesus was crucified. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. <laughs> Listen, that door is still open. Oh, I need somebody to hear me today. <laughs> I said the door is what? It's still open. 
The Lord allures us towards it this hour. Jesus Christ is our door of hope when he said, I am the door. But remember, he's the only door. Only his sacrifice and death can take away sin and remove the curse. Dearly beloved, there is a door of hope given in the wilderness. Whoever shall enter through this door shall be saved. And I know, I know you've felt locked in in your life. I know you've felt confined. I know you have felt abandoned. I know you have felt neglected. I know you've felt hopeless. But there's a way out. I've come to tell you, there is a way out. Jesus is the door. He is the way out. He alone can make a tunnel through your mountain of despair. He alone can bring a rainbow and a silver lining behind the dark and intimidating clouds in your life. He alone can make your sad heart sing again with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He alone can fill you with hope for tomorrow and direction for the road ahead. He alone can open doors that have been slammed shut long ago. He alone can put a smile where there has been sorrow all your life. Jesus is still the only door. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. So, what have we seen? Hmm. We've seen God balances chastisement with charm. We've seen God balances criticism with comfort. Finally, my brethren, God balances caution with celebration. I said God balances caution with celebration. Hallelujah. I see this in the second half of verse 15, 15b. Look at it. She shall sing there. <laughs> oh, I love it. She shall. No, remember where she is, right? She's in a wilderness. He says, she shall what? She shall sing there. As in the days of her youth. As in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. God balances caution with celebration. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, this is a celebration of a great and wonderful salvation. God saves his people so that he may have them to himself. The salvation promised in our text is a secure salvation. God has promised and believers can count on it. The trust relationship will be restored. As faith begins to feed on the promises, even while the believer is still in the wilderness, we read, she shall sing there. In the wilderness, a song of salvation will be heard. While the winds of trouble still blow, while the darkness and the distress still surround them, believers will find a song beginning to well up in their hearts. It'll be a song of hope and love for God 
who has allured and brought them into the wilderness. Believers will appreciate that the wilderness journey was not withheld from them. Now, they will say to each other, like the psalmist of old concerning the wilderness. Where am I? Where am I? Psalm what? Psalm 119, verses 67 to 71. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. Now, I know people who don't know what we're talking about will think we're crazy. When you are saying, I'm glad I got that affliction. Thank you, Lord, for that discipline. You sound crazy to people. Thank you, Lord, for the trouble you brought me. Let me keep reading. Verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Verse 69. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Verse 70. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. Okay, 71 now. It's good for me. Psalm 119.71, it's good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. How many of you can honestly say there are certain things I would have never learned if God didn't give me some trouble? And you look back and say, thank you, Lord, for the trouble in my life. <laughs> I know I've got at least one witness here who will say unashamedly, it's good for me to be afflicted in the wilderness. I, I needed that. <laughs> God used my trouble to save my life. <laughs> Might sound a little nuts to those who do not know God, but please bear with me when I shout. You know, some people get concerned. Why is he shouting? <laughs> really, I can't help it when I'm talking about these things. Hmm. Thank you, Lord, for disciplining me. It was painful, but it was worth it. It brought me out of a dangerous and destructive place. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Because of the wilderness, true believers are tried and proven. There, in the wilderness, they find out who God can be to an unfaithful person. In the wilderness... We also learn to sing the songs of deliverance. Just as when Miriam led the children of Israel to sing when they were still young and just out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 15, verse 21. And Miriam answered them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. You know what she's talking about, right? You know, you know what that song is about, right? Huh? There they were, the sea in front of them, and Pharaoh's army behind them. And some started to murmur, what's going on here? Wouldn't it have been best if you just left us there, slaves? Come on now, we, we out here to die? What, what's with this? What kind of leader is this? God opened up the sea, had them march through. But Pharaoh's army was still coming through the dry land in the middle of the sea. God had only purpose for them to come on through so he would drown Pharaoh's army. And so now she sings. <laughs> In the wilderness, she sings. 
This was Miriam's song as she danced with the daughters of the children of Israel. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ now comes, now becomes the object of praise. Psalm 118, verse 14. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. <laughs> Beloved, we are saved because God wants uh, to, to have us close to him. Yes, this salvation song of celebration comes in the midst of the wilderness. How do I know? This is because the wilderness will echo with the praises of people who have been allured by the cords of God's love and drawn irresistibly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Someday, the wilderness will be left behind for good. And, and look how it may be left behind. Solomon saw it and wrote of it when, in astonishment, he asked the daughters of Jerusalem a question. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 5. Who, who, who is this? Coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved. <laughs> the answer is obvious, isn't it? It is she who once was allured, brought into the wilderness, spoken to with comfort, and permitted to sing the song of salvation. She is leaning on her Savior, and she is betrothed to him. Do you see the picture? Jesus is coming out of the wilderness with his bride, the true church. They're close. He's supporting her. And she will not be unfaithful anymore. She is on her way to the marriage feast above. And the songs, once sung in the wilderness, will soon be sung in the strongholds of salvation in Zion. Chorus upon chorus will soon resound through the heavens. It is a song of Moses and of the Lamb. Where is that? Revelation chapter 15, verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Listen, folks. If you have no desire to sing, I suspect that you do not know my Jesus. I am really scared as a pastor when people have no desire to sing. Are you kidding me? You know Jesus and you don't want to sing? I sometimes look over the congregation and I'm saying, how can he just stand there? That one may, may be lost. Something's wrong with you. You don't want to sing? Jesus has a way of putting a new song in the believer's heart. The Lord does not merely give a song. He is the song. According to the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 2. Let me quote that. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. So what am I saying to you? It really doesn't matter whether or not you can carry a tune in a bucket. Go ahead and sing anyway. Oh, you didn't hear me. I know some of you have toned down your voice a bit because you don't want the people next to you to laugh. But I'm giving you permission right now. Lift your voice. Sing anyway. 
If you have met with Jesus, go ahead and sing anyway. Did you hear me? I said sing anyway. Go ahead and sing. Sing! Even when you feel like crying. For he will soon wipe all the tears from your eyes. Sing! Even when you are weary of life. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Sing! Even when the enemy has cornered you. For no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Sing! Even when you are surrounded by haters. For the banner over you is love. Sing because you're happy. Sing because you're free. Sing for his eye is on the sparrow and I know he's watching you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. In closing, beloved, please don't be afraid of the wilderness. For God has carefully and lovingly planned the experience for you. I'm speaking from experience. I never thought I would, on this particular day, for the plans I had for this day, be asking my phone, what's the temperature outside? By the way, I got scared because it said, I didn't know it was on Celsius. So it, it says uh, minus three. I said, what? <laughs> I asked it about Fahrenheit. He says, okay, 27. <laughs> I love America, but I, I generally try to stay away in winter. <laughs> But I have a bit of a wilderness experience right now because uh, for the first time in my life, um, someone is speaking seriously to me using my name with the word possible cancer in it. Wow, is it over? <laughs> I told some of my people, I'm, I'm scared of pain. I'm not scared of death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. But also, is my work over? I must tell you, this has been a growing and a wonderful experience for me. So I say, don't be afraid of the wilderness God has carefully and lovingly planned for you. The true believer's sanctification is more important to God than the believer's comfort. Oh, you didn't even hear me. I said, your sanctification is more important than your comfort. But he still comforts you. If you're walking with the Lord, please do not panic about what he's doing with you right now. For he's pleased to use where you are to get you where he's taking you. Your trouble is only transitional. It's a means to an end. This too shall pass. Your God is moving, removing the dross so that you may shine as pure gold. This is the refiner's fire. You can know that you are maturing spiritually 
when you can thank him even for the trouble he has ordained for your life. Thank God for his disciplinary love. For by it, our God has purpose to balance chastisement with charm, balance criticism with comfort, and balance caution with celebration. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised goodness to your servants. You have left us nothing to ask from your hands, but what you have already freely granted. O Lord, establish forever the word which you have spoken concerning your servants. Do as you have said, Lord, and let your name be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of armies, he is the God of Israel. Amen. Hallelujah.